Hello and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, David Busis interviews our newest emissions consultant, Gail Dower. Gail is the former first reader of all applications at Michigan Law, and she's here to share her insights. Gail, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about admissions. It's really a pleasure to have you. Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me. I was hoping that you could start by giving us an overview of what you did at Michigan. Sure, I'd be happy to. I just want to say before we begin that I am not currently working for Michigan Law in any capacity, and my opinions that I, you know, that we're discussing today are my personal opinion based on my work, but I'm not expressing any official policy of Michigan Law or anyone who's currently there. I was hired at Michigan Law as the first reader. I reported directly to the Dean of Admissions and Career Counseling. So my role was I would be the first set of eyes on all the admissions materials, and I would write up a summary of the most substantive components of each application. So the dean could use that as sort of a roadmap for when she read the files as a second reader and made the ultimate admissions decision. And let's unpack the different things that you just said. So first, you said you were the first reader. How many readers were there altogether? Well, I was the only first reader, and the dean was the second reader. So two. (laughs) So most or all files were only read by the two of you? Yes, I was, for the most part, for the two years that I worked at Michigan, the only first reader of all the applications that came into Michigan. And did you get the final say, or did you conclude with a recommendation? Well, I would give my recommendation to the dean. I would fill out a comment sheet that the law school had developed over several years. Um, I'd give my suggestion to the dean, but she had the final decision-making authority because she had the responsibility to put together a class to see how all the parts fit together, which I didn't have. I just focused on each application at a time and made a decision for each one. I see. So you look at one and you say, in isolation, I am really enthusiastic about this one, or this one is a little questionable. And then is it safe to say that the dean's job is to take all of those pieces and make sure that all of the ones that you were enthusiastic about are still going to work together. Yes, that's correct, David. She'd have more of a big picture. Um, She'd work with many files at the same time, and she'd have to figure out, assuming one applicant was a great fit for the class, how that would work with the other applicants who she had already admitted or was thinking of admitting. I want to go back to the comment sheet that you said you fill out. Can you tell us what that comment sheet entailed? Sure, of course. The comment sheet was a way for me to summarize what was inside the file. The major parts of it were talking about the extent of the interest in Michigan that the applicant had expressed. I would talk about that if I just felt like it was very generic or boilerplate, or if I was sensing a real enthusiasm for Michigan along with some more specific reasons why they felt Michigan would be a great fit for them. I would fill that in. Also, I would summarize their work experience, focusing on the most recent two jobs, describing the substance of the work, the 
company, the industry, and the dates. Of course, making note of any large gaps on the applicant's resume. I would note also if they had a lot of extracurricular involvement, what the nature of that was, and if it was very time-consuming, whether an undergrad or while they're working. Then I would talk about my view of the personal statement, where I would focus on how successful I felt the essay was and any particularly noteworthy topics in the personal statement. I would also there note if there are any significant spelling or grammar issues. And there are other things on the comment sheet as well. I could get into it if you want to hear about that. But those were the main things, along with my ultimate recommendation for the file, which fell into four categories, where I recommended should admit, could admit, deny, or waitlist. And I would also have a space to write if we needed to gather some more information in order to make a decision. Wow, I have so many questions about everything that you just said. I don't even know where to start. My first question, though, is pretty mechanical. Was this a free-form document? You're just summarizing it in your own way? Or did you have prompts? Or were you filling out a spreadsheet? I would say that it was more akin to prompts with fields that I would fill in. I wouldn't have a lot of room because we tried to condense all the main information in summary form on the comment sheet. So each field was pretty small. How much were you allowed to write in each form? I would say the most that I could really write for any specific prompt on the comment sheet was maybe a couple sentences, because I'd have to really give the dean a roadmap for each applicant's work experience, as well as the personal statement I wanted to talk about, the impression that I got of the applicant's personality, which was really the key to what we were looking for on the comment sheet. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin, Gail. You're giving me so many openings. Okay. Let's go back. First of all, can you tell me the other parts of the comment sheet that you mentioned you could explore if you wanted me to? Because I do. I want to know as much as you can tell us. Okay. I mean, there are a lot of moving parts for us to fit together, and they really are all part of the comment sheet. Because ultimately, the dean wanted to rely on my summary as the first reader for when she was making a decision or when she communicated with applicants. So really, all the basic information was on the sheet. But I can give you some other highlights. Sure, please do. Well, we would indicate on the comment sheet if the applicant had connections with Michigan anything from relatives or if a faculty member wrote a letter of recommendation for um, Michigan undergrad, for example, some of them worked in the law school, say in a clinic, and that would be really relevant for us to know if they have an interest in pursuing a dual degree at Michigan, since uh, Michigan really prides itself on being interdisciplinary because it's in the middle of the larger campus. And so it was a school that appeal to students who wanted to pursue a master's or PhD at the same time as a law degree. So there'd be a place to write about that. Also, I would summarize the letters of recommendation that the applicant submitted with just the most important language from the letter, the relationship to the recommender, and my overall assessment of the recommendation, how strong it was, or any language that jumped out if they said this was the best student I've ever had or something like that, I would want to quote it. 
Were all of your summaries qualitative or were you giving them a score, like a B minus or a three out of five? No, it would really just be my description. You know, I'd always have to use my judgment and pull out what I thought was most salient in the file. I would spend maybe 15 minutes reading the whole file, but I would have to really condense it for the dean to make her review more efficient so it's more qualitative, except for my ultimate recommendation where I'd have to just pick a category. And, you know, another area on the comment sheet, when I reviewed the application itself, I would talk about the applicant's background. I would read about the applicant's parents, their educational level, jobs, you know, getting at socioeconomic status. If they're a first-generation student, also that would be relevant, perhaps, in the ultimate decision-making. So there would be a field for that as well. Can you give me an example of a summary you might write of the personal statement? Well, in the personal statement field on the comment sheet, I would really reflect on the personal characteristics that I noted about the applicant based on their writing. In other words, I wouldn't really discuss the topic of the essay as much as I would about their personality, where I thought there'd be a particularly if there were really positive personal characteristics that I thought would be a great fit with the Michigan law community, I would talk about that. Or if I had some concerns, on the other hand, about their personality maybe not being a good fit, I would mention that because I knew that's what um, was really the most relevant in my review of the personal statement. That is fascinating to me. I don't quite understand what you mean. So are you looking at the personal statement and saying, oh, this is a Myers-Briggs INTJ, but we only admit EMFFs or whatever? I know, I know that you're not really doing that. But what, tell me more about what you mean by a Michigan personality. About half of the 1Ls live in the Lawyers Club in Michigan. And also a 1L can have direct contact with clients in the various law clinics, also a very tight-knit community. Michigan cared a lot about having a certain type of student, which you talk about as the Michigan personality. We're looking for mature students. About 80% had at least a year of professional work experience at the time that they applied. Someone who's self-aware, who can reflect on themselves who's aware of their strengths and weaknesses and really what they want, where they're going, someone who gets along with other people. They're looking for someone who's really going to be supportive of their classmates and not be really competitive, you know, someone who they call the gunner sometimes, and someone very humble who doesn't have any arrogance about them. At the end, you make a recommendation of should admit, could admit, waitlist, or deny. And I want to talk a little more about each one of those. What might make you write should admit? And is it based on both the numbers and the qualitative components? Or are you only looking at the qualitative components? Well, when I was reading applications, I always had the medians in mind that we were shooting for that year. That, you know, that's the direction that I was given at the beginning of the reading season. So that would always be in the back of my mind, but it, so I'd have to say it would be a combination of the numbers and the personal characteristics, something in their professional background, perhaps, that would all form a picture of someone who'd be a good um, 
contributor to the class. There's just a lot of different components that I would think about. Would the difference between a should admit and a could admit boil down to the numbers often? Or what does make a difference between those two categories for you? Well, certainly the numbers are often a part of that. If they're at or above the median, especially with respect to the LSAT, I would say the fit that I saw was the main other part. If I felt that their background was super interesting and would contribute a special perspective to the class based on their professional work experience, the quality of the writing, the personality characteristics that I could glean from their essays. I mean, they all really, all those factors could make a difference. In as much as it's possible to answer this question, what for you is the difference between a deny and a waitlist? I mean, often I would recommend waitlist for a candidate whose numbers met the medians approximately, who didn't have anything in particular to add to the class in terms of their professional experience, if they were just sort of more typical and plain vanilla. Maybe if they didn't have work experience, if they're coming right from undergrad and they had the numbers approximately, but really nothing special, I would want to waitlist them because maybe they would be a good fit for the class. You know, the dean could determine later on in the reading season that they she wanted to pull that person off the waitlist for whatever reason, but I, they didn't jump out to me as being super exciting, perhaps. How often would you recommend anything other than should admit for somebody with spectacular numbers? I mean, that was definitely difficult for me to, uh, if I saw their numbers way above the medians and they were a super strong academic student, my inclination would be to admit them. But then I'd have to, one thing I would look at in that situation of high numbers is their level of interest in Michigan law. If they didn't write the number one essay, which is explaining why they're interested in Michigan or didn't explain with a specificity why they thought Michigan would be a good fit, I would perhaps recommend a, a could for them because someone with a really high LSAT and a GPA at or above the median as well, for sure would have a lot of choices where to attend law school. So if they didn't mention Michigan at all, I would be concerned that they really were not very interested. And I just wouldn't want them to take up a space if there's someone else really excited about Michigan and had a good reason they articulated why they belonged at Michigan. What if they didn't write the first essay because they wrote two other essays? I think Michigan limits you to two supplemental essays and they include things like addenda and diversity statements. Right. There's eight optional essays, and then the applicant, as you said, can choose up to two to write. Well, I felt like if the person, if the applicant was really interested in Michigan, they could probably work that into maybe a personal statement or another essay. I would want to see somewhere in the application, I'd want to see the applicant express their interest in Michigan specifically. And I felt if they were silent on that, then they really didn't have a genuine interest in Michigan. How could you tell if their interest was genuine? I would have to imagine that many, many people who are writing the Why Michigan essay say very similar things. That's true. A lot of times, I mean, I read about 225 applications a week, and I would see the same things over and over again, which were 
from the website or, you know, very general about the clinics. And all those things are true, but I felt like the person didn't go out of their way to investigate Michigan. So what distinguished an applicant was when they talked about their visit to the law school, where they named names of professors, if they sat into their class and they you know, were glowing about um, the experience they had when they visited, or talked about if they met one-on-one with an admissions counselor, they would mention that. Also, there were applicants who talked about their academic interests and made a connection with faculty's work, or it just was clear to me that they knew that Michigan was a good fit, that it we had programs that they really wanted to be a part of, that they would mention very specifically in terms of the professors they wanted to work with or clinics that Michigan had, where I could see they had a really strong background in that specific area. That's what made it jump out as a great fit to me. I meant to ask you this earlier. You said that you read 225 applications a week. How long would it take you to read each application? Overall, it took me 12 minutes to read an application, but that really varied a lot depending on what was in the file. What took longer was if, you know, that the LSAC includes all kinds of college classes within the GPA. And sometimes I'd have to go through and parse out, you know, try to figure out a chronology of the different college classes. That would really take a long time. Or if it's a student who took advantage of writing all the optional essays, and there's just a lot of writing for me to get through. But sometimes it was if the resume was a little bit disorganized, or if if the applicant didn't indicate what they were doing at the time of the application. I know the dean really needed to know that, and I'd have to look through everything and try to figure that out. All those situations, it would take me longer than the average. That makes sense. So what you mean is it would take you 12 minutes on average, but it would would vary widely. It varied widely, and also some applicants took a lot less time. If both numbers were under the median, I might just scan the file a little more quickly to look for anything um, extraordinary in the background experience of the applicant, especially late in the season when the spots were getting more tight. I might just be a little more cursory in my review at that point. How often did you recommend for admission or write could admit for an applicant who was below both medians? That happened fairly often, actually. Because I felt it was my job as the first reader to point out those special cases to the dean and advocate for students who brought in a unique perspective to the class where they could really add something in terms of their background, their experience to the class. So I would say every week I had a couple students who I would personally advocate for. And maybe you've already covered this, but what sort of thing would make a student special? And I guess another related question, could a student be special in that way if they did not experience hardship, if they don't have a fascinating life experience, could they be special simply by dint of being a great writer? That's a good question. Um, I was going to mention overcoming adversity and challenges in, in their life. Sure, a wonderful writer would definitely be something that would be an advantage for them, but that to me wouldn't allow them to overcome both numbers being below the median in terms of the writing. 
even though, of course, that's something I would notice and I would I would write on the comment sheet. I'd say they'd have to have extraordinary work experience or something in their background or academic history that made them a particularly great fit for a Michigan program where the professor would really like them in the class to contribute their perspective, work in clinics, do research with them. Um, other than that, it would be something about their personal background. Also, Michigan really liked to see a STEM background. About 20% of the class came in with a science background, science, math, computer science, sometimes expressing an interest in IP law. So that's something I would note. But most of these factors wouldn't allow them to overcome being below the median on both. Is it safe to say that life experience and or extraordinary work experience are the only two factors that would let them overcome below median numbers? That sounds accurate. I mean, I would include in there, you know, I would just want to be clear that I'm not talking just about overcoming an adversity or personal challenges, but I would include maybe something like graduate work in another field that gives them a new perspective to add to the class. You know, maybe living in another country, being fluent in other languages that made them relevant. And I'll just give you an example that I'm thinking of, which is I had a student who was under the median for at least one, either GPA or LSAT, but she had lived in Japan on and off, and she was fluent in Japanese and loved the Japanese culture, and she was raving about a program at Michigan, which is a Japanese law program, which uh, Dean West was in charge of that, and that's his area of expertise, and I thought, wow, she is a really perfect fit for Michigan, and she was a good writer, was mature, had excellent professional experience, and I said, what a you know, that I would really like her to come. And I advocated for her with the dean, even though one of the numbers was below the median, uh, just to use that as an example. Would you ever follow up on the fate of applicants like that? Advocate for them even after you write your comment sheet? I wouldn't really follow up on an applicant because every week I'd have the 200 plus applications to read and review. And also I knew that the dean would, she was very thoughtful in reviewing applications and she'd have to really think through how they fit into the class as it was forming. And sometimes she'd wait and see how things shaped up and read it again and again. So I knew it wasn't something instantaneous that it could take time. And that was really her ultimate call. You know, the admissions office is can be a very hectic place during reading season. So each week brought its own excitement. Tell me a little bit more about that excitement. Were you going into the office and reading all the files there at a computer? How did this physically work? Well, I did have a cubicle in the admissions office. Um, I was sitting in with a processing staff. But for me, I prefer to read on two monitors. So one could maybe have the transcript up, could have the information coming in from the CAS system, from the LSAC. And then the other screen could maybe have the comment sheet so I could do that simultaneously. So I mostly read in my home office, but at least once a week I would be in to the law school for a staff meeting on just, you know, what was happening that week in terms of the processing or meeting with the dean. So... Mostly this was work that I did at home. Would these meetings, either with the dean or with the whole staff, 
ever change the way you read files? Would you get instructions, for example, to, I don't know, look for people with experience taming dolphins at SeaWorld this week or what have you? I can't say that I received very specific instructions in that sense, but I would have an idea of how the class was filling up and in terms of of the volume that week. And I would know, I mean, obviously we had a sense of at what point we were in the cycle in terms of filling spots and making offers, but I, it wouldn't really affect what I did as a first reader. I tried to just stay consistent. Does that mean that you had the same standards at the beginning of the season and at the end of the season? Because I think that you said earlier that you might be a little more willing to downgrade someone to a could admit or even a wait list if it's later in the season and you're filling up. Right. Well, I definitely wanted to sort of have a consistent standard because I felt that that was important for the dean to know that they could rely on my judgment being the same in terms of the quality and how I'm assessing applicants. But on the other hand, I knew that there wasn't as much space and leeway for me to recommend someone who was below both medians toward the end so that they're both true. You know, in terms of someone who I just love for their personality, maybe they had something really interesting. I just didn't sense that I would have the leeway to really advocate for them, you know, more based on their numbers later in the season. Speaking of numbers, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said that it would sometimes take you a long time to follow the trail of their academic history, and you would have to parse the transcript and arrange it in chronological order. Why was it important to you to figure out what class they took when? I just wanted to understand if I saw academic work that wasn't in their college. Were they doing graduate studies? Or was it classes perhaps they took in the summers in college um, to meet requirements? It was relevant to me if they were taking graduate classes because their performance in the classes would be highly relevant to the prediction of how they'd perform in the law school. And also you know, would allow them to bring the perspective from a different field in to their law studies. Also, a lot of students I felt would take summer classes at like a community college to beef up their GPA, which is fine. I just wanted to know the difference and put the GPA in context. Uh, Also, I want to mention something else that could be relevant with the GPA, which is sometimes a student um, would start off in sort of in a getting lower grades in college for various reasons, and they might transfer or have work later where they where their performance improved. And then we would think of it as we would try to separate out their degree GPA from the degree granting institution and consider that separately if that would help them. I think it's really heartening to hear that you made an effort to contextualize their GPA. Does that also apply to people who took difficult classes or went to more competitive institutions? Certainly, I would take that into account in terms of the quality of the institution. I mean, in general, that wasn't a huge factor that I thought about. It would sort of be maybe if someone was on the edge because the law school is looking for a really wide range of backgrounds. A couple more questions about background then. 
if an applicant had been out of college for two or three or more years, did you care if they had experience in the legal world? Maybe about 20% of the applicants worked as paralegals. I mean, really, the dean loved having experiences that were non, non-law related because they added a different perspective to the class and they had something else to share with their colleagues once they came to the law school. Um, I mentioned STEM backgrounds. Michigan also loved students who worked in the Teach for America program. And they actually have a formal arrangement where they give fee waivers to those students. I saw a lot of Peace Corps volunteers who would often come in knowing multiple esoteric languages, people working with immigrants and refugees, people in the policy area, writers. We had someone who wrote the Fearless Flyer from Trader Joe's, (laughs) which, as you know, is very funny and well-written. So that all would be a plus. I'm going to ask you an impossible lightning round question. If you only had one spot left and you had to choose between somebody who had a really fascinating background but a terrible resume, it was just disorganized, poorly written, hard to read, or on the other hand, somebody with a pretty run-of-the-mill background but a pristine resume, who do you give the nod to? Well, it's easy for me to say as a first reader, uh, (laughs) since I didn't make the ultimate decision, but I would have to go for number one. Because it's the substance of what they're bringing is really more important to me. But of course, you know, the way they present themselves too shows uh, their judgment and their maturity. So that for sure is important. Does the same sort of reasoning apply to the personal statement? If, for example, in this silly thought experiment, you only have one more spot to award and you have two applicants with equal numbers and one applicant has an incredible life story and has overcome very steep odds even to send in the application, but the essay is just very poorly written. And then the other applicant grew up in uh, an upper middle class family and doesn't have all that much in the way of what we commonly think of as diversity factors, doesn't have an incredible story to tell, and yet manages to write it incredibly anyway. This applicant is just the best writer you've ever read. Which applicant do you give the nod to in that case? Well, that certainly is a difficult decision because, as you know, writing is really central to what law students and lawyers do. So that's something that would be great for us to see. But on the other hand, someone who overcame a lot of adversity to be successful and to achieve academically um, would definitely have that, that resilience and grit that would help them get through even the hardest of you know, law school curricula and work as a lawyer. So I don't, I tend to go for um, that sort of gritty personality. Is your ultimate goal to pick people who A, are going to make the class more interesting, B, who are going to succeed in law school, or C, who are most likely to have a great legal career? Well, I think I, it would be a combination of A and B, to be honest. I mean, the career is really what, they, what the student makes of it. But for sure, the law school is looking for students who can contribute. And we want to see evidence of that by their, in their employment, what they talk about in the application. 
And that's one reason why the law school really did put a lot of emphasis on the LSAT score, because it's been shown to correlate very highly with our first-year performance. So those two factors, I would say, are essential. Gail, in general, you mentioned that you are looking for evidence of somebody's personality in the personal statement. Are there other personal characteristics that you go in looking for, or do you just read it, see what you find, and make an evaluation based on that? Well, I do evaluate the applicant's personal characteristics that are implied by their writing in the personal statement and in the optional essays as well, looking for evidence that the applicant will be a good fit and have this Michigan personality that we've been talking about. I write on the comment sheet my overall impression of the personal statement, good or bad, and it's less about the topic than about how successfully the applicant handled the question in terms of the quality of writing and also what they indicate about their personality and um, the characteristics that I think would show that they're either a really good fit or, or not a good fit. I want to zoom back and ask you just a few more general questions. So first of all, were there any common mistakes? What were the easiest ways that people could sabotage their chances? Well, the easiest one happened um, more regularly than you would suspect, which is the student would say how much they really wanted to go to Yale or Cornell, uh, you know, a school other than Michigan, which you'd have to think they didn't even proofread their personal statement once. <laughs> that always surprised me. But also just, you know, sloppiness in general, typos, things like that. But also someone who I felt, you know, sat with a thesaurus and looked up words, you know, to make them more impressive sounding, but they just didn't use them properly. And it just didn't sound like their authentic voice, which made me wonder why they just couldn't express themselves more naturally. Sometimes, too, people wrote, a number three essay, which is the GPA addendum, and sort of brought things to my attention that I didn't even notice before. You know, little things that happen in a class that made their grade or GPA go down very slightly, which I normally wouldn't think as an issue. And all these things also, you know, made me question the applicant's judgment. A really common mistake applicants made, we refer to as a narrative resume, where the applicant would write a personal statement that basically repeated the same experiences that were apparent on their resume. And often these were about their work. So honestly, it was pretty dull reading for us, especially after the, we read the 200th one of the week. And these did not provide us with really any additional insight into the applicant's personality. So in that sense, it wasted the precious real estate of the application, as well as the 10 minutes or so that I had to read applications where I could have learned something new and something maybe more helpful about the applicant. Also, we often saw applicants who didn't disclose on their resume what they were currently doing. If they weren't in school or working, it just left a big gaping hole there. And that was something that could easily land someone on the wait list because we had to hunt the information down and we felt that they were not being forthcoming in explaining what they were doing. 
Another thing, too, I just want to throw in there is an applicant who talks about high school, who has that on their resume or talks about experiences from childhood or from high school where, you know, since Michigan's looking for mature students who are ready to handle the rigors of law school, if someone's really focused on the past and their high school, I think it just um, would indicate they're not quite mature enough for law school. Does that go for the personal statement as well as the resume? Yes, for sure. Certainly, you know, childhood experience could be relevant to what they're talking about with a personal statement if they're just going to touch on them and move along quickly from that. But if they're really focused in the past, you know, someone who talks about wanting to be a lawyer from the time they were born, it's not particularly helpful. Are you saying that any mention of childhood or high school is totally verboten? Or are you just saying that you shouldn't focus on it? You definitely shouldn't focus on it. And I would say there just has to be a good reason to mention high school at that point where you're applying to law school. I would shy away from that if, if there's an alternate subject or topic that, to talk about. Okay, now let's look at the other side. So, Gail, I want you to think about an application that really wowed you, and preferably an application with below-median numbers. Now, of course, I'm not going to ask you to say anything specific, but can you just talk about what that application was doing well in general terms? Sure. A lot of times I felt that it was the overall tone that the applicant had where they were in a professional environment where they expressed, you know, maturity, all the things I was talking about where they were already in a professional context and they were developing expertise in an area maybe akin to law or not, you know, I'd like someone with a lot of personality and ideally a great sense of humor who seems just really pleasant and fun person you'd want to have be a colleague. I liked people who had experience in other fields, whether it's STEM or I saw some musicians who I just loved, who was clear that they were super committed to their field and they had a personality that was an experience that made them really detail-oriented. And for me, that translates really well to law, which is highly detail-oriented feel. Last question. You mentioned at one point that it can really bolster an applicant's perceived interest in Michigan if they visit. But we are recording this in the midst of the COVID era, and it doesn't look like anyone is going to be visiting law schools, at least for the foreseeable future. I'm wondering, in general, how you think this time might change the application process and what law school applicants might want to keep in mind right now. Right. That's a really good point, David, that because of the volume of applications, I mean, when we're reading over 200 a week, it did really make a difference to have a name, to have a face to the name. If someone called or came in the law school and we built up a relationship with them in a positive way that would be helpful. It's definitely more challenging to do that now during the pandemic. But law schools, I know there's a lot of virtual events that are happening, including the LSAC forums, where there's a chance to interact with deans and admissions officers. I also think that, I mean, when I was at Michigan, students were very welcome to call and talk to admissions counselors with questions and 
I mean, they would definitely know the students' names. If it's someone who called and made a good impression, I think that would be helpful. How would a student actually call Michigan and talk to an admissions officer? What would they say when they called? Well, there were admissions officers who would be available to tour students around, you know, at least when I was working at the law school, and then they would be available to meet one-on-one to answer questions. So I would imagine that under the current, in the current situation, a student could call up the law school and ask to speak with an admissions counselor and with whatever questions they had. The counselors, you know, that's definitely part of their responsibilities. I see. So you you call with a good question. That's my understanding. I mean, I didn't meet with students um, in person, but I definitely heard the admissions counselors would meet with them in person and talk on the phone, you know, for most of the day, a lot of the, the days. So I got the impression that the admissions counselors were very receptive to talking with students who are interested in Michigan, answering questions and um, staying in touch with them, too. Gail, can you leave current law school applicants with one last piece of advice? Sure. I would suggest just becoming as familiar as you can with the law school's programs, um, researching the faculty. What are the faculty working on? Look at their articles that they published or books that they published and see if you have a connection there, if there's someone you really want to study with, because these are world experts in their field of law, or perhaps there's a journal that's really intriguing to you. There's obviously the standard law review, but now there's specialized journals as well in intellectual property, all types of areas, technology law. Michigan also has some distinctive clinics. They just opened a veterans clinic recently. There's also a human trafficking clinic with Professor Hathaway, just to explore things that are really unique to the school and see if you identify a fit with your interests and your background, because ultimately, I think the decision's about fit on both sides of the equation. Thank you so much, Gail. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hi, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope you found this episode useful. As always, you can reach out to us for help with your applications on sevensage.com slash emissions. See you next time.